Welcome to episode seven of your MedMal podcast, Discovering the Needle. Nurse consultants help you discover what you didn't know that you didn't know about how to win your medical malpractice case. In this podcast, we look at anonymized true examples of how a behind the scenes, non-testifying nurse consultant was able to quickly locate, isolate, and articulate the core issues in common and not so common medical malpractice scenarios using his or her nursing expertise to save the firm upfront costs, resulting in higher profits and higher compensation to your deserving client. If you're new to our podcast, welcome. You can learn more about how behind-the-scenes legal nurse consulting can improve your firm's win rates and profitability by following us on LinkedIn or visiting our website at www.nplegalconsultants.com. By following our weekly podcast, you can use your commute to sharpen your own standard of care issue spotting and causation narrative skills. Grow your virtual Rolodex of top nurse consultants of all specialties and discover the MedMal plaintiff attorney's secret weapon for slaying the medical corporate giant. It's time to discover the nurse consultant advantage. Let's get started. Welcome everybody to our show today. Today we have Connie Schaefer. Connie, tell us a little bit about your clinical background to start off. I've been a nurse for more than 41 years and I've had the majority of that in infection prevention. And I've also worked ER, ICU, CCU. I've done specialty labs and long-term care. Connie can be reached on her website at www.connieshaferlegalnurse.com. That's C-O-N-N-I-E-S-C-H-A-E-F-E-R, legalnurse.com. So infection prevention, I wasn't even aware that was a specialty. That's interesting. Is that an outpatient specialty or an inpatient specialty? It's inpatient. It's now stretched out into the long-term care world, really, in just the last several years. It's more so in long-term care where they actually need to now have a long-term care infection prevention nurse. They've never had that before. So I want to understand a little bit more about what an infection prevention nurse does, because that sounds like an interesting specialty that could lend itself really well to medical malpractice and identifying where something could have been prevented, especially hospital-acquired infections. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. As an infection preventionist in a large metro hospital, I worked with this specific nursing units, intensive care, emergency room, the medical surgical floors, the operating room, all of these areas to make sure that their practices fit the standard in terms of preventing infections, whether it be timeout in OR, whether it be the proper antibiotics used, all of these things needed to be evaluated. My area of focus in my last infection prevention job was the areas of central line associated bloodstream infections and catheter associated urinary tract infection prevention. A lot of devices that are used when somebody is in an inpatient setting, there needs to be good nursing practice or else they will develop an infection. Anytime you're going to have something coming from the outside world and entering any kind of opening of the human body, infection is virtually ubiquitous in medical procedures as a complication. I did a lot of teaching the bedside nurse to make sure that they understood how their practice was so important to follow it to the letter and not make any alterations to the the process because that is how the infections slip in. And if they can document that they followed that procedure, that can be 
really helpful from a defense perspective, knowing what to document. Did you get involved in writing policies for your hospital? We did. I was involved in bringing in new devices. So I worked with the product managers in terms of which ones were best for infection prevention and then had to develop the policy and procedures for how to use these devices. You probably have to do a lot of research in that to develop those policies as to what standardized guidelines are. Where did you typically find those standardized guidelines? The big ones, of course, was the CDC and the NIH. And then our APIC organization was the Association of Professionals in Infection Prevention and Control and Epidemiology. Thank you for indulging me on that explanation. I know that's actually not what you came here to talk about today, but I didn't, mm -hmm. I couldn't help but ask you because I think that's such an intriguing background that lends itself quite well to legal nurse consulting, especially in the medical negligence arena, because hospital acquired infections are one of those things that's virtually always, almost always preventable. I, I can't say that with a hundred percent certainty, but it's something that should be investigated. But today you're here actually to talk about another type of very common medical negligence issue, and that is pressure ulcers. What happened with this pressure ulcer case and what were you able to establish as a nurse review? A 68-year-old woman who had been relatively healthy with few aging issues was admitted to an ICU in a rural area with COVID. And subjectively, it's quite interesting, this woman was quoted to say, think they thought I was going to die. There were four people in the ICU at the same time with the COVID. All of us were on the ventilator, she said, and the other three all passed away and I survived. And so I think they thought I was going to die, so they didn't turn me. Where were we in the COVID crisis at this point in time? Oh, my. It was right in the thick of it. It was January of 2021. Yeah. So we're still trying to figure things out. Right. So huge peaks going on. So she was already in the ICU and her perception was they thought she may die. And so they weren't bothering to reposition her. Talk a little bit about some of those repositioning standards of care for nursing and whose responsibility is that? Who's at risk for, for pressure breakdown and that kind of thing? All patients are at risk for skin breakdown in the ICU, especially if they're not being nourished, which oftentimes is the case in critical situations. Why is that? What's the, what's the correlation there? We all need nutrition in order to keep all of our functioning parts of our body. And our skin is the largest organ on our body. And if you don't have the proper nutrition coming in, it puts it at stress. And it doesn't allow the basics of how it functions. So the skin is a protection organ. And if it doesn't have the proper nutrition it will be at risk. So we've talked a little bit about why people in the hospital are at risk, and especially the ICU. It seems that there's a lot more pressure in nursing homes and in ICUs. Why is that? Repositioning is vitally important for the maintaining of the skin. And many times this gets missed. In the case of the patient that I'm telling you about, that is what happened. They were focusing on her respiratory status because she had covid to the exclusion of the care of her other body system. Sometimes you have to put yourself in that scenario, in the environment that the nurses are in and in the world that they live in then where COVID is at its peak. You've got very sick patients in the ICU, probably shortages of nurses because of people being out sick. 
And these people are on full isolation. And in the hospital setting, we're talking airborne precautions. What are the implications of airborne precautions on the day-to-day functioning of an ICU nurse and how complicated that is? Because I can see how that could impact someone getting turned frequently. So the nurses have to wear almost a moon suit to protect themselves. The personal protective equipment is immense. They have to wear goggles or face shields and N95 masks. And at the time they had to wear head covering and even had to wear the cloth cover suit over all of their clothing and even foot coverings before they could enter into the room. And they have to take it back off again when they leave the room. A lot of times the ICUs would be made all COVID units. And so they did not have to take them on and off when they left the rooms, which was helpful. However, it made for a long 12-hour shift to be in those moon suits. Yeah, physically exhausting, physically draining and going in and out. And we've all seen the images of the nurses with literally bleeding around their faces. It was horrible times to to have to serve as a nurse. I'm curious if you feel like that could play into the defense of some of these cases coming down the pike, because we know that we're just now starting to see some of these COVID cases that are starting to come to litigation or begin to get settled out. And some of them will eventually be going to court and we're going to start to see COVID after COVID case. I'm curious about your opinion on whether you feel that the defense will be able to effectively use the stress that is on the nursing staff to make their arguments about things like this for basic nursing cares. What what are your thoughts on that? I definitely think the defense will use that. Being a nurse in a world of COVID, it was nearly impossible. I don't know how to explain it more than that. I'm so empathetic toward each one that was taking care of this patient. And I totally understand the stress that they were under. I was there. I truly understand the stress of infection prevention in the world of COVID when we didn't know. However, the basics were missed. You have to remember to turn them. And according to all the documentation, This patient was not turned for more than five days, other than slightly to the side, but remained in what we refer to as a semi-fowler position, which is the head of the bed up and all the gravity pulling the pressure of the body down right onto that tailbone. And they never assessed it. None of the documentation was there. My heart goes out to them in every way whatsoever. It was a year in to how COVID had presented to America. And yet it was really at its peak, I would say. Yeah. And it's so simple, even the very minimum, even just to alter that angle of the bed. I'm talking minimal intervention to have shifted some of that pressure from the tailbone to the spine temporarily and then back. I mean, you can rotate through just as long as there's some rotation. There's always complicated cases where there's relative contraindications or full-on contraindications to certain positions, but there's virtually no case where every position except one is contraindicated. Exactly. They also have specialty beds and that was never addressed. These specialty beds prevent the pressure sores from developing and yet they never put this patient on one of these specialty beds. Tell our audience a little bit more about what a specialty bed is and how it can help. It doesn't replace repositioning. No, it doesn't. However, some of the specialty beds will actually reposition themselves. Some of them have actually air bubbles and some of them have a tilt that will 
automatically you set it up on a timer to tilt every hour, every two hours. Uh, these are wonderful for the very severely critical patient. A vast majority of ICU patients are completely sedated and can't reposition themselves. Why not just have a default specialty bed in every single ICU room? Because preventing one lawsuit would cover mm -hmm. that cost. Exactly. Same thing for nursing homes. So the standard of care is repositioning a minimum of every two hours and it could be more frequent. I mean, if they're already developing skin breakdown, then it could be every hour. It could be even more. It could be every half hour to reposition. They have pressure relieving devices in place, depending on where the breakdown is occurring. If it's on the heel, it could be a boot that they wear, even in bed. And they can have their feet elevated to keep their heels off the mattress so it doesn't rub. So there's all sorts of interventions that can be used and is very effective. What was the extent of the damages on this case? It was very sad. She was not repositioned for, it was more than five days. And on the sixth day, they turned her and discovered a deep tissue injury. And at that time, it was what we refer to as unstageable. And being unstageable means that they just could not determine the depth of it. It had slough on top of it. It was not clearly defined. So they had to refer to it as unstageable. It was at that point, and actually three days later, that there's an order that came in to consult wound and skin. They're specialists that work on skin breakdown and things such as this. And so actually it was going on. 10 days before this actually happened. And when they came in, they did a debridement on the tailbone. The debridement is like a surgical procedure where they have to go in and clean out the dead tissue. Most of the time it's done in an operating room. And so it's a major procedure and you're dealing with the anesthesia and everything else. And at that point, they cleaned off the eschar and the slough tissue, and it became a stage four deep tissue injury, which was the worst it could possibly be down to the bone. And it had tunneling that actually they could place a long six inch Q-tip inside the skin and it can go in four inches tunneled up underneath between the skin and the bones. Uh, so the opening would have been about four inches in diameter, but then you take the long Q-tip and slide it up underneath, and it actually was able to go inside the tissue up to four inches. That's what they call tunneling. The tissue was just dying, and then you could see the bone. So all the muscle had been destroyed, basically from pressure, simply from pressure. How long does it take to begin to develop pressure when things start to be a problem? As we mentioned before about the poor nutrition, there was no way for the body to protect itself with the skin without being nourished, deep tissue injury can develop in a short period of time. And if they were not turning and the, the force of gravity with her head of the bed elevated, semi-thalar's position, the elevated position to keep the head up, of course, to help with breathing, but then all the pressure comes right down on the bottom from gravity coming right down. And I don't think that they had turned her over fully in, in that period of time or according to the documentation, nobody noticed it. On our podcast, I like to break things down for the attorney listeners, especially because I consider our attorney listeners, those who have been doing some med mal, 
may not be completely lay people anymore. See our audience of attorneys, they know a little something, but there's still things that they do know that they don't know. And there's a lot of things that they don't know that they don't know. Teach us a little bit more about how does pressure lead to a hole in your body? It's a great question. Unrelieved pressure can cause tissue death because there needs to be a good circulation of the arterial and venous system in the body through the skin. And if you press down on that for unlimited time, ongoing pressure will cut off the circulation, which decreases the oxygen, which if it's already compromised because of poor nutrition, the skin just can't survive. And that's the rationale behind prevention with skin breakdown. You're essentially letting the skin breathe. Absolutely. The oxygen is carried through the blood. And if you're pressing down on it and it's not getting that blood supply, it literally dies. When I say letting their skin breathe, it's not about the out, the air from the outside no, touching it. It's from inside. It has a lot more to do with the oxygen, the blood that is arriving at the tissues, that oxygenated blood. It has to be able to get to that bus stop. That's right. This seems like a really common issue. I've actually had some of my attorney clients ask me as a nurse practitioner consultant to the legal profession and other legal nurse consultants to look at these cases that involve pressure ulcers because sometimes their physician reviewers don't really attribute that to medical negligence. I've had some attorney clients tell me that their physician reviewers will just say, these things happen. This is just part of the risks of being in a hospital. That just happens sometimes. And I think that's just a matter of the physician's not being familiar with the standards of care, not that they don't understand the pathophysiology of how a pressure ulcer develops, but just that nurses don't need that physician direction or oversight to tell them to take these kind of interventions. Many attorneys think that we have to have a doctor's order in order for the nurse to do the work, but that's not true. For basic nursing care, there are standards. And in an ICU, the basic standards is just simple, basic nursing, repositioning. We deal with all the systems and you won't have an order from a doctor to reposition the patient. It's what we do. Yeah. There's a lot of nursing interventions like that. And that's literally what they're called as nursing interventions because they don't actually require a physician's order specifically. They're standard things that we know that we're supposed to do. And they vary based off of the risk for the patient and things like that. If a patient is ambulatory, you may not need to be turning them every two hours. Somebody that can, like a, what we would call a walkie-talkie, can turn themselves. And we do. In fact, you and I turn ourselves every day when we're sleeping at night. We toss and turn, whether we know it consciously or not. What we're doing is relieving that pressure on our bodies. Unconscious people can't do that. And people who are particularly heavy or particularly light even, that have protruding bones in different areas or joints that stick out can sometimes have pressure just simply because those bone protrusions are pressing up against things. I have a 16-year-old daughter who's about 75 pounds. She can't move herself. She's got to be turned. She's a skinny little thing, mm -hmm. but I got to watch her because she's got bony prominences all around her body. And so she is at risk for pressure. Surprisingly, the frail, the small, these are the ones that are at greater risk. It's primarily because like you said, they don't have the nutrition, but they also don't have that extra padding that can give them a little bit of leeway on how that pressure is sitting and exactly where. Let's talk a little bit about nursing care plans and 
like what those are. Nursing and medicine are obviously very complementary and they integrate with each other a lot. Our audience may not necessarily understand what's the difference between a diagnosis and a nursing diagnosis. Nursing looks more closely at the body's systems in terms of we, we need to make sure that their GI system is working, that they have a daily bowel movement. And so the skin is part of that. We look at making sure that they're clean and dry and not allowed to be sitting in moisture, this type of thing. Nursing works at processes and the doctors provide the medical diagnosis for what is actually wrong with the patient. For instance, you'll never have a doctor write an order to bathe the patient. That is what nurses do. And it's not just about so that they can smell nice. There's actually health benefits, maintenance of wellness benefits. Washing the bacteria off the skin, allowing the skin to be refreshed. Which is another reason I kind of questioned and wondered, how is it that she can go for five whole days without this being noticed? Because evidently they weren't doing great thorough bath. Really good opportunity for a nurse to get it once or twice a day really good skin assessment. And there's no excuse not to, because it's like you're rolling them already. You're bathing them and getting involved in that. Once a deep tissue injury starts, it has to complete. That's why prevention is so crucial. It's like this unstageable ulcer wasn't going to heal up just on its own. It had to complete the process of getting that SCAR off. That tissue was dead. When you say deep tissue injury, is the starting point of that injury deep inside the tissue? Yes. And so what we're seeing is just the outside. It's like a blister has to pop eventually. And many times the situation is that it needs to heal from the inside out. And we don't always see that. So once it's truly been damaged and once the cells are truly dead, it has to complete. It's got to come all the way to the surface and then it's got to be healed. Stage one and stage two, there can be healing involved if you eliminate the pressure. But once you've allowed it to get as deep as it is, even though you can't see the depth of it on an unstageable, it just has to go through the process. Another thing that I've observed is when physicians are reviewing cases involving pressure ulcers, they often don't see where the problem occurred because they typically will look only at the progress notes, the labs, the radiology, and the doctor's orders to the exclusion of looking at those nursing notes and the nursing care plans and nursing interventions. Because a lot of times those are on electronic records. They're not designed to be printed. And when they're printed, they look very clunky and very difficult to understand what you're looking at. On the other hand, if you look at those screens all day and every day, you're familiar with what's on those screens. When you see them on paper, your brain can more easily adapt to, oh, this is just a paper version of what I see every day in my charting, which is why I think nurses are so critical in offering their services to break down what's in the nursing notes, the nursing plans of care and the nursing interventions because they're going to be able to capture those things that were red flags. I think of for specifically for pressure ulcers, what is it that an attorney or his reviewer should be looking for to have said intervention should have occurred here? This was an opportunity for intervention. Obviously, the repositioning portion of the nursing documentation. One of the challenges is that we chart by exception. And so there's a lot of assumptions made that Things are occurring in our nursing world that may or may not be occurring. We've always been told if it's not documented, it didn't happen. However, with this charting by exception, it does make that a little bit more difficult to answer. Now we have to question just because it's charted, does that right. a lot of copying and pasting going on? 
lot of copying and pasting. And so that is something that you have to dig through to find. A lot of autofill going. Autofill. So at the very beginning of the ICU stay, this patient was taught to prone and proning is laying on your tummy. Proning was discovered to be very helpful for lung expansion. And, and so by doing that opens up the lungs, the little air sacs, the alveoli in the lungs, it expands them and allows you to take deeper breath. So proning with COVID especially when it was this bad, it was very effective. So they taught her that the first day or two of her ICU stay. But as soon as she was intubated, yes, it's more challenging. You've got this tube out of their mouth or nose to try to get them turned over, but they didn't turn her at all. And it wasn't until they discovered the wound down the road on day seven that they then proned her again. They waited until that amount of time. And I know that proning is very difficult. I'm not downplaying the fact that it was very difficult, but that was something that was interesting to me that they did the proning to begin with, and then they didn't do anything. And then they proned again later after they discovered the wound. Yeah. So it sounds like they missed two major nursing standards of care. And the first one is skin assessment. And the second one is prevention of pressure by routine turning. It's as simple as that. Exactly. I agree. <laughs> and in this case, there's even more reason to have repositioned the patient because it was also beneficial for her respiratory status to have repositioned her. And they were failing that standard of care as well. Had they met that standard of care that really had nothing to do with her skin, it would have also met the standard of care for her skin. Exactly. The thing about pressure ulcers, one of those things that is just, as we talked about before with infection, I think even more so with pressure ulcers, just simply virtually entirely preventable in hospital yeah. setting. And long-term care. That's a sad story. Thank you for sharing that with us today. I appreciate your time and conversation and your expertise in this area. Thank you. You've been listening to Discovering the Needle. Nurse consultants help you discover what you didn't know that you didn't know about how to win your medical malpractice case. This podcast is a production of Discovery NP Legal Consultants. Discovery is the largest unified growing force of specialty nurse practitioners offering consulting services to medical malpractice attorneys who take cases for the plaintiff. Nationwide nurse practitioner consultants to the legal profession or NPCLPs at Discovery NP Legal Consultants include specialists in orthopedics and first assists in spinal and other surgeries, as well as a host of other specialties. To request a consultation or to be featured as a legal nurse consultant on our podcast, you may reach us on our website at www.nplegalconsultants.com or by calling 208-779-1990. That's 208-779-1990.